Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Welcome, Kelsey. It's so great to have you with us today. I'm so glad that we were able to coordinate a time for us to come on and have this conversation together. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. I want us to start by getting to know a little bit about you. I know that you are kind of smattered all over internet land, and I'll link to all kinds of things about you so people can get to know about you and find the work that you're doing and all of those pieces. But can you share with us a little bit about your background? I know that you have a military background with the Canadian Armed Forces. I would love to hear a little bit about that, as well as kind of the shift you've made since then into other work. Uh, yes, I'll put it into a nutshell. I'm, I was uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces uh, in t- from 2000 and the end of 2007 to 2011. I was a Canadian artillery gunner with the uh, 5 RALC from Vaquette, Quebec, and uh, mm-hmm. I joined the military when I was 18. And then um, I deployed uh, with the Canadian Armed Forces and supported some other countries on operation. And then I came home and was subsequently released, medically released from the Canadian Armed Forces um, due to post-traumatic stress and then started a, a company in 2015 and incorporated in 2016 as Brass and Unity. And we are, I'm the CEO and founder of Brass and Unity. Um, we take uh, casings and things like that and turn them into jewelry and sunglasses and then uh, donate 20% of the net proceeds to veteran and first responder organizations all over the world. So we recycle products, turn products um, into wearable mental health items, and we work with organizations in the mental health space to uh, bring about change in a different way and look at um we look and work with different organizations that are kind of at the forefront of healing in terms of mental health and life and limb um, generation and, and helping with uh, our community. And so we do that all over the world. And uh, we do that, like I said, through products. So the vehicle, the products are really just a vehicle to put the money in the hands of these organizations. And we found a way of doing that through accessories, jewelry and sunglasses. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my, that's my shtick. <laughs> It's okay. So this is why I think that you're the coolest. So, um, all the love in the world to Mike and Mariah, who we've also talked to on this series about escape hatching, but for both of them, their escape hatches were kind of like adjacent to, or, um, in similar vibe to what they were doing as first responders. So, uh, Mike is a firefighter. His kind of adjacent thing is a website and YouTube piece called firefighter now, Mariah was EMS dispatch, shift over to fire dispatch, so similar skill sets, and then is also participating in a magazine that is fire related. I love that you took what you did and you, it's still adjacent, but in a totally different thing. Like it's product creation and it's creative and it's pretty. And it's, I I think it's just really cool and innovative that you found a way to like do this little jump to something very, very different, but still connected and deeply rooted into the lives of the people that you have served with and work alongside. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree and disagree a bit. I think it's, I think it's completely opposite of what I used to do. I mean, I used to be an artillery gunner, so I used to fire one five, five millimeter howitzers and drop them on targets. So it's nowhere close to totally. what I do in the civilian world now. I I, I work uh, in, 
you know, the fashion industry and the awareness industry. Um, and I also host a podcast called the Brass and Unity Podcast. So that's something I wasn't doing. And now I, I have a book coming out and a few other major projects. So none of them are anywhere remotely close to the military. But at the end of the day, they all go back to supporting the community that I that I became a part of at a really young age. And it, it, it formed the majority of the way my brain works and it formed um, my habits and it formed the people I enjoy spending my time with. And it formed a lot yeah. of who I am as an adult. So in that sense, yeah, it's very, it's very adjacent and similar too, because I'm still in the same community. I'm still uh, working to help evolve and, and make uh, people's lives better in that community. But it's, it couldn't have been more of a drastic change going from, you know, being out in the dirt, not showering, firing guns to working in the fashion industry where the idea of bullets makes most people pass out and, or they just throw them at you because they're so in their bubble yeah. and, live that life. So it's been an interesting progression in trying to get civilian population to understand the struggles of vets and first responders, but doing it through a way that, uh, they could digest, uh, jewelry is yeah. something that civilians can digest. It's something isn't, that's not too aggressive or in your face. You can talk about the crazy astronomical suicide rate attached to jewelry and somehow it makes it palatable for most people where, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened in their life is their latte is not hot. So mm -hmm. it's a hard balance in trying to get individuals to understand why they should care. Um, but fortunately with COVID, we, the rest of the world has realized that mental health is a real, real problem. And, uh, yeah. they now are starting to grasp the reality and weight of what that looks like. So it's, it's bridged a gap uh, in the civilian world and what I do for them to understand, you know, the severity of, of uh, mental health issues. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so there's so much good stuff and I'm super excited to dig into all the pieces. The kind of raison d'etre, like the thing that brought you into military, what was that? What was the backstory? There really isn't much of one. I'm not really one of those people who was like, I went grew up with family in the military and I didn't really have the, we never shot guns. There was no interest like that. I didn't have a whole whack yeah. of like my uncle served and my cousin served and my brother. Like, right. that, like that legacy like, thing. No, not even a little bit. I find in Canada, we just really don't have that. Like the United mm -hmm. States does. Um, it's not a route that is like heavily uh, pushed. The military isn't like a direction that's a, um, suggested, if you will, in high school, mm -hmm. uh, right around that age. But no, I just met a lady on a bus and it's that simple. I met a lady on a bus yeah. and she was a vet and she, something clicked and resonated with me that is, is hard to describe now, but it, I do now know looking back, connecting dots, she was a, a massive catalyst and turning point in my life at a young age that made me, you know, switch gears and, and really do if you, you know, no pun intended, but an about face and really go the other direction than what I was, uh, at the, at the time. Hmm. So entering it, what were your expectations? Like what, what made you feel passionate about entering it, given that it's not customarily what we talk about as something that it, that an 18 year old would invest in? For me, I didn't really have an expectation. Again, I didn't 
know anyone in the military at that time uh, in a way that would have been relevant in my life or something I would have a regular discussion about. Um, so I didn't have an expectation. So I went into it completely blind and open-minded mm. to whatever this is, this will be, and I will work with it as I go. I knew what I was capable of in terms of physicality and my ability to handle stressful situations at that time. Then again, I was also 18, so it's hard to really say that I knew what I was doing as our brains don't even finish developing till what, 25? Totally. So, you know, the the damage was done early and the maybe I was naive or arrogant or whatever, but or just adventurous when you don't have attachments. Mm-hmm. You, the idea of going and doing uh, and starting your life and putting your life, uh, having a career like that doesn't doesn't feel like a daunting task if you don't have attachments to, to anything. Yeah, fair. That's kind of a piece of it, isn't it? Like that innocence and naivety bodes well in terms of recruiting, but it's hard in terms of the like, I didn't I didn't know what I was necessarily getting myself into all the way. And so well, then there's no- this like outcome piece, I imagine. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because that's why we recruit so young, right? Yeah. That's why it, young men die in rich men wars because we're, we're, you can convince others. You can convince others to do things on behalf of other things. That's why, that's why extremism in in certain religions is so heavily, uh, people always say, how, how, how could someone blow themselves up when you, when you're young or you, you're impressionable, you're able to use that to your advantage in a way that can often, end in someone's life ending. And that's no different than the military going to war and being willing to go to war is glorified in the, in the way that we have TV shows and the way that we have film. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we think about, uh, individuals, you know, the hero story, the hero journey. And so there is often that idea that, um, there's a pull to that a type personalities. And if you can get the right person in front of somebody who's impressionable with no attachments, who doesn't, doesn't really look like they have a full blown direction, you can really, you know, you can really convince someone to go do anything. And for me, I didn't even need convincing for God's sakes. I volunteered. I just, I'm an a type personality who, who is physically fit and figured I could do the job. And again, I never, I don't even know that I held a gun up until the military at that point in my life. It's not like I had an infatuation with weapons or, or destruction or, you know, it was more of a, I, I liked helping people. I enjoyed helping people. And I thought this would be a way that I could help individuals. And during an active hmm. deploy, like a country that was actively deploying to an active war zone, I figured I could help. And I, again, you're 18. So you think mm-hmm. you're Superman. Right. Totally invincible. Yeah. Totally. I'm curious. It sounds like there weren't a lot of really structured expectations walking in the door, which is fair. Given that, my next question was what kinds of things surprised you about it? Maybe it's a little harder to be surprised when you don't have strong expectations walking in the door that get kind of like challenged. But were there things that you found surprising once you were there, once you were in, and once you were going? I think... It's interesting that you ask that because with with expectations going into something like basic training, you often get this perspective uh, in in Hollywood film of American military. Mm-hmm. And so when you see anything that's military related, people are always getting yelled at. People are always getting screamed at. People are always marching in lines. People are always, you know, perfect hair, perfect uniform. So, I, you know, I had that that blind expectation of, I figured, well, we're just probably going to get yelled at and we're probably going to have to do a lot of physical, physical activity. But that was not because I was, 
it was something I had thought the Canadian military did or didn't do. It's I literally figured that out from watching movies and being like, ah, that's probably how it's going to go. This is, I can figure that's, you know, if that's how America's doing it, we're probably not far off. So we're probably just going to get yelled at. We're probably not going to sleep. And, you know, they, they do talk to you when you have a recruiter. When you do go in and you're signing your paperwork, they do walk you through things. Like they don't, you're not completely blindsided. They do give you like, hey, this is going to be difficult. Hey, you're going to be, if this is the trade you're going in, this is what you can expect. This is what it would kind of look like. And so it, honestly, it wasn't that difficult. But at 18, you can, you know, your only worst day is the worst day you've had. So at that point, I didn't really have any serious things. I had a few things in my life, but I downplay that. But you know what I mean? Like I didn't have anything that I was like, oh yeah, like this is going to be so, you know, hard. I just figured I'm going to be tired. I'm going to get yelled at and we're going to, we're going to figure it out. But that's only because I, again, I was naive or I just didn't, I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. Fair. When you kind of think about the time that you were in, were there moments prior to coming home, where you wondered about needing an escape hatch? Like, did you, did you imagine that you were going to be like career military, you were going to do this for the next 30 years? Or did you imagine that this would be for like a period of time? And then I would transition to something else? What was your, what was your anticipation about that? No, I figured I was military for life. That's how that worked. I don't, I didn't anticipate signing up for something. Why would, I mean, that's something I never understood. I feel like if you have a plan outside of the military prior to going to the military, why are you going in the military? Yes, maybe you want to have the serving component. Like I know a lot of I know a lot of of my very patriotic friends are like you serve your country. Period. That's mm-hmm. part of it. Like I know people yeah. who believe that there should be mandatory service for 2 years um after school. Like it just yeah. It sh- you should have to serve your community in some way. It takes a person who could be you know, struggling to find themselves or takes a person who is into bad things, you know, uh, bad crowds. It takes a person who um, might need community because they had bad family life. And if you give them two years of some type of service, you de- you really create and develop a selfless human being on, on some level. And mm-hmm. it teaches them tools. But in my mind, there is no way in hell, I'm going through basic training, SQ, DP1, beating the shit out of myself, learning a trade, and then being like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way through. And so in my eyes at that age, it's no different if I decided to be a cop at that age. If I wanted to go through school to be a cop at that age, I figured that's a career move. I had no intention of leaving the military whatsoever. That was never a thought in my mind. Okay. So then coming home and reconciling with this PTSD piece, how did you go from what you were doing to brass and unity? I don't know that I ever reconciled it. I didn't come home and think like, oh, I have PTSD and this is my life now. When you're in it, that isn't a conversation that's had with yourself, at least from my my personal experience. I didn't... They diagnosed me with acute PTSD when I was in Afghanistan um, and sent me home early to to the regiment to go to the hospital. So I didn't – never number one, didn't want to leave the country, wasn't ready to leave the country. And the way I was forced to leave the country, it wasn't right. Um, Mm -hmm. When when I go through the way that I was – the lack of oversight from superior officers and understanding to the 
the lack of communication within the doctors in Afghanistan to the red to the um the staff members that I was currently outside the wire in a fob with. Yeah. Um, there was no communication about medication I was put on. My my own leadership had no clue that I was on different about five or six different sleeping pills and pills, and they sent me yeah. back out there to go work with these people. So the lack of communication within that, and then the lack of wherewithal or know-how to in 2009 to recognize signs and symptoms and then address them, attack them, and handle that person properly and transition them back to Canada safely was, was, was piss poor at best. It it was absolutely, you know, I, I often, I talk to my Sergeant, he's not a Sergeant anymore. He's uh, an officer now and he's further up, but he's still Sergeant to me. But I talk to him often about this. And every time we talk, we still have the same conversation. And he still goes, I didn't even know you were on those medications when you were actively on the fob at an OP tower with a machine gun in your hand. Right. We had no goddamn clue. And then we didn't even know where you went when you left the country. So mm. when your superior officers and individuals who are with you, who are supposed to have responsibility over the younger or the lower ranked individuals have zero idea, it's because the government and, and the military at the time weren't handling PTS or, or handling those issues the way that they are now. I mean- yeah. Canada wasn't involved until a little bit into, you know, Iraq had popped off, then Afghanistan popped, and then we kind of went, then we were a a UN force, then we switched over to a combat role, like a combat mission role, um, I think in 2007, and then I was there in 2009. So we hadn't been in a major war, a real combat, like fighting, you know, firefight, close-up war for a really long time, and we hadn't figured out PTS since Vietnam and World War II. So we're not at the stage for them to understand or have full full education on how to handle someone. So it's not that I'm saying, oh, these guys were idiots. They don't know how to handle me. I'm saying they didn't have the education and the tools at the time to know how to handle me properly. So that's why so many of us were handled so... So it was just handled so wrong. And that's why you see people committing suicide at the rate that they are. Totally. Totally. Okay, so you're you're 100% right that the the transition from I have PTSD into I have this business that I've grown are going to be separate pieces. Mm-hmm. My hunch is that one informs the other though because of how much your Brass and Unity company feeds back into those who are experiencing PTS and suicidality and all of these other pieces. Like your story is um so interconnected in ways that that look very intentional from the outside anyways, right? Um, So having lived through this return home that, again, sounds really poorly handled, I have yet to hear stories that sound really fantastically handled even today. So, you know, like, well, yes, that timeline (laughs) plays a role. I I don't know that we're like winning at life yet either. Okay. It's not just me. Okay. Um, so like where, where along this trajectory, do you get to the place where you're like jewelry? This is the answer to the things. How does this happen? I I don't understand how that happens. I still don't know that it is the answer. Like, listen, it's an interesting (laughs) process, right? Because you have to pivot and change and move and adapt, especially in this day and world and business. And so for me, coming from zero college background, zero education in business, coming from uh, a family of long haul truck drivers where none of us owned businesses in our life, 
the, one of the only reason I was able to do what I was able to do is because my husband is an entrepreneur. My father-in-law was an entrepreneur and I learned through, I learned, I learned through like life school. I learned yeah. through figure it the fuck out school. And so <laughs> there is no I, way to go, but up. <laughs> no, I mean, how much further can it get? So I, yeah. my doctor and I, during treatment, one of my treatment sessions, he had suggested to me art therapy and you know, it just as a means of distraction and way to get my mind off of things. And, and I started, I started building jewelry on the kitchen table for myself, not for anyone else. And it turned into this business where people started liking it. And, uh, I just started running with it and all of the suggestion my husband was like, Hey, I think you have something here. I had been toying with the idea of nonprofit work, uh, before that, or finding some, some way to involve myself in a, in the community again, because frankly, I had a really sour taste in my mouth when it came to a uniform. I still kind of have one, if I'm honest, yeah. uh, more with police than I do with military itself. Um, there's something to that for sure for me. But, mm -hmm. you know, I I took this and I ran with it and I I taught myself, you know, with with supports of others, how to, how to have a business, how to incorporate, how to run a, a retail business, how to have a website, how to start a podcast, how to get press, how to involve myself. And with toying with those ideas with nonprofits, I, I knew I wanted to help the community in a way, but I also knew I didn't want to just ask money, people for money to, to help people because yeah. there's, a, there's a million and one veteran and first responder organizations and that's part of the problem. Is there's yeah. there's too part too much compartmentalization and there needs to be the leaders in the community need to sit down and have a conversation and really reach out to all of these and kind of consolidate if you could because so many of us are all trying to do similar things that there's there's massive overlap and such yeah. and the finances are spread so thin in the community that if we consolidated a bit we would have mass change and that's kind of what you're seeing with the psychedelic movement and um, with the veterans yeah. in the community. Um, but yeah, so I, I started with jewelry because it was something that was attainable. I could build it. I could tack, like from yeah. a tactile standpoint, I didn't need to go and get manufacturing right off the bat. It's something I could teach myself, get better at, progress at, and just work with. And that's what I did. I, I you know, got a pipe cutter, a drill, and a hammer. I've said it a million times. I, the, the, the hardest thing is starting. So yeah. when I was able to start, then I was able to see something you know, past that day, which then made me feel a little less suicidal. It made me feel a little better that day. And so, you know, when you start looking at what, what does the trick, what helps people, what pulls themselves out of depression, it's often finding something that isn't for self, it's for others, right? You can, you can, yeah. you can pour yourself into something else. And that's what I started doing. I started pouring myself into brass and unity and started really small. And then, um, Right before COVID hit, we were in 200 retailers in North America, and we had, you know, upwards of over half a million dollars of donations and uh, partnerships and working with uh, different celebrities to help elevate the brand to get individuals to see that mental health is a problem. Uh, COVID then hit and wiped our company completely out, and we've had to switch and learn again how to pivot and grow differently on an online world in a way that we yeah. never were present before. And so putting and learning and growing again um, into this new new forum of business and now trying to learn this this new form of business like all over again. It's like starting all over again. And so yeah. it's really just the vehicle to put the money in the hands of the people. And now with our podcast and uh, the other projects we have coming out, we, you know, 
we donate from those as well. So it's anything that Brass and Unity does, anything I'm attached to has a donation component regardless of, of what it is. So anything I do, I think whether it's jewelry or the book or the show or anything that I work on, it, it's always going to be about the community and for the community just through a, a different means of doing it. At the current present time, it's the podcast and the jewelry and sunglass brand. You know, down the road, it'll be the book. It'll be whatever I put my hands on. It'll always be involved with the community. Well, and that's the piece that I think is really beautiful about what you've built, because I think that you have taken this 18-year-old happenstance decision um, that does feel like kind of decontextualized, right? Like I'm, I'm not one of those legacy people. I'm not one of the like conventional ways that you might enter this. And yet here I am. Um, and this way of like how we construct our story, right? Like there's a lot of things that happen to us that shape our story, but we have a, a role in co-creating it and making it meaningful and choosing how we take it and use it for something, and you've done this really cool thing where you've taken this story that's happened to you in a lot of ways and you have shaped how it narrates into this thing that is really proactively putting an effort into this community that so desperately needs it. <coughs> yeah, it's a it's a different thing. It's not something I ever saw myself doing. It again, I I never like no chance would if you would have looked back at my life or when I was younger and asked me, "Hey, I is jewelry something for you? At no point would that have been something that I would have said, yep, sure. I could see my life going that direction. I mean, totally. I never saw myself in Elle magazine or fashion magazine with people talking about my my deployment. I never would have I never would have seen myself in any of the positions or any of the rooms I'm in now. But I I know now this is where I belong. It's about finding a new way to keep business running so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. But in a new way, I went for the first four years of my company's existence doing one thing and it working. And then having to rebuild an entire company again, just like so many are doing right now. And so finding, and now it's about a new challenge. It's about what does that look like and how do I reinvent all over again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and what will the next reinvention be, right? Like how do you in business anticipate? I think COVID has been this really interesting thing for a lot of business owners I see that too on our end is the, this awareness that there has had to be this very big pivot point and an awareness that we don't have control over if and when the next pivot point happens. And so we, I think so many people felt very underprepared for this one. And I think it's highlighting this piece about like, what do we think is coming down the pipe and how do we anticipate for whatever we think that could be and prepare for that a little bit better or more effectively than maybe we were for COVID. Yeah, I don't know that you can prepare for something like COVID. You know, things like pandemics are going to come and go when government needs money. And that's kind of how the war machine works too. That's what you're seeing with mm-hmm. Ukraine is you're seeing one war pop closed and another one has to pop off because so much of our life is built around these systems that, you know, we we have to fund. And yeah. um, if there's nothing to fund, it will create something too. And so I, it's hard to plan for things that are out of our hands, but the best thing you can do is try to diversify. So for us, we, when, when things shut down in March, we figured out, okay, well, how do I get a medical license so I can make masks? How do I do that? How, yeah. Is there a way that I can do that as a civilian? Well, she, oh yeah, sure there is. So yeah. that's what we did. We pivoted. Um, we had our factories 
start producing medical masks for hospitals. And so I think we did a few hundred thousand masks for hospitals in Ontario. And that tided us over for a gap period there. And then once we realized what was going on, and then the also once I realized the the ineffect that masks actually have and all of those things, I couldn't consciously keep producing a product I believed was not actually working or useful. So I stopped and then we, we went back to doing what we did and making jewelry again and sunglasses again and start focusing on how do we get our brand to be more driven towards mental health. It always has been mental health. And I'd been screaming about it for six years when other, you know, brands, the social entrepreneurs thing wasn't a thing yet. And yeah. we were always trying to make people see what vets and first responders were going through. And the world wasn't really paying attention yet. And now they are. And so I am grateful for that. But now yeah. we are at a point where we're at a tipping point in society where like the who has stated one in every hundred death is death by suicide. I mean, mm-hmm. at no point should a society of our caliber and our expertise and education be having individuals feel so depressed that you've got a 10, 11, and 12-year-olds taking their own lives. I mean, we should be looking at this in a different way. This should be – this is a pandemic of mental health. And we needed to find a way where we could really start driving our message towards checking on your people, checking on your buddies, doing buddy checks. And that goes for civilians as well as it goes for veterans and first responders. And now we're in that transition period where we're really trying to focus on that and use our – products strategically and uniquely to place ourselves in a way that people have a touchstone piece to feel like they're part of a community when they might not feel like they have anyone to support them or anyone that cares about them at all. For the last two years, we have offered the Self-Care Dare five-day challenge for first responders and frontline workers. It is an intensive, amazing community experience of trying to learn skills for self-care that go beyond commercialism and bubble baths. It goes deeper and it becomes a personal wellness plan that you can implement and repeat to ensure that you remain sustainable in the job that you do. If you are wrestling or walking the line to burnout, or if you are way past that line already, or even better, if you want to prevent coming near that line to begin with, sign up and join us for the very last time that we will be offering the Self-Care Dare as a live five-day challenge. We plan to continue offering the dare in some way, shape, or form, but it's going to look different. This is the last time we're going to be offering it with a community-based Facebook group where we can connect with each other, where you can ask questions of me, and we can work together to map through this process together. So if you have been wanting to take the dare and you haven't yet, this is the time to join. It is only $10 and it gives you five days of really quick, short video lessons that teach you about five key principles for self-care. It also gives you worksheets to help brainstorm ideas. And we in the Facebook group dive deeper into how we're going to personalize the skills outlined in the program to make them deep and meaningful and applicable to your life. You get to connect with me, you get to connect with others. It is an awesome, fun time. And everyone who's completed the course has really, really enjoyed it. Registration for the Self-Care Dare has been open and you have access to join in until 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Monday, July 4th. 
Then those who sign up will get to join me bright and early on Tuesday, July 5th and work with me until the 9th. Check the show notes for the link. Yeah, totally. Well, and I, I've been on your website and your pieces are gorgeous. Um, and I think Thank you've you. done this really, again, cool thing, blending um, the story of what you have done for work into this beautiful jewelry piece that, again, very different worlds, very different mm-hmm. skill sets, very different ways of thinking about life. Yeah. And yet this connection that just is like this thread of what your story has been, it's really lovely. I just think that if you, if people, <clears throat> instead of thinking of things in a way of looking at things of like, this happened to me and ruined my life. I think yeah. if we all realize things happen to every single person on the face of this earth and they ruin lives every second of every day, everywhere, there's yeah. wars going on that most of the West don't even acknowledge or pay attention to. There's mm-hmm. trafficking left, right, and center. There's there's horrific things. Yeah. But it's about how you take that, how you move forward with that, what you do with that is really what will define you as a human being. Totally. Not downplaying any of these. Some I, I know people who have had <clears throat> three of their limbs blown off. Yeah. And they're the most positive, impactful, kind, supportive people I've ever met in my life because it's not what it's not that it happened to them. It happened mm-hmm. to them. Sure did but it's what they've chosen to do with what happened to them yeah. that can allow you to move forward. So I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not the person I was when I was 18. I'm not the person I was when I was 25, when I was, you know, really struggling. I wasn't the person I was before, you know, right. Uh, even up to like a year and a half ago when I was struggling, I'm a different yeah. person because I've, I, it's no longer what happened to me. It's yeah, it happened to me. I got no issue talking about that. But it's what I'm doing with it that's going to make it all okay. It's going to make it all be for something. And if you have a reason, if you can take a reason from it, then you can you can change the world. Hmm. I love I love this. I love doing this podcast because I love that people put so many different words to the things that are in my head and my heart so much of the time. Like I talk a lot about meaning making, right? So as a trauma therapist, my job is to help people process the really horrific things that happen to them. I've worked a ton with military and first responders. There's a lot of really horrific shit that happens. With that, it's it's less about that it happened, although that it happened is huge. It's less about that and it's more about how we make meaning out of it, how we tell the story of what happened to us and what it means about us that it happened, right? So Um, an example is we can kind of tell the story through the lens of victimhood where it's this thing that happened to me and I am just like the bearer of this thing, or we can tell ourselves the same story through the lens of victorhood, which says, yes, I had this thing and it happened and, and here's how I overcame or here, here's how I walked that path in a way I can feel really proud of myself for. That doesn't mean it was okay or easy or that I wish it would happen again, but I can feel really proud of how I did this, right? And how we narrate that story to ourselves really does determine then how it sits in our bodies and in our brains and how we then operate from a space to carry that forward for the rest of our lives. 
Yeah, so many people, <clears throat> it happened to them and they are the victim of it. And and I get it. There's yeah. an anger period. There's an adjustment period. There is a uh, an acceptance period. There is all of those things. Yeah. Uh, you won't feel, you don't always feel like right after it happened, like, oh, it's all right. I'm, I can move through it. It doesn't totally. work that way. I, I yeah. still work on it every single week. So it's, it's a mindset change. It's a, it's a development change. It's a rewiring phase. It's a, it's a getting off of heavy due to pharmaceuticals and fixing the problems phase. It's seeing the yeah. world differently by using different types of healing modalities and not, closing myself off to different ideas and ways of healing. That's what it is. And if you can harness that, mm -hmm. even a piece of that, you're going to be just fine. It's the people yeah. who want to live in the woe is me. The world owes me something because of this happened to me. World doesn't owe you anything. Worst mm -hmm. things have happened to everyone, you know, and again, the worst thing that has ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And so you have to meet someone at that level and you have to meet someone in that space and that's okay. But <clears throat> what's not okay is not taking ownership over your shit, not yeah. taking ownership about how the energy you put out, not taking ownership over the way you make people feel because of how you're feeling and not doing anything about it. That's not okay. I don't agree with that. It takes time to get to that point, to be at that time, to be ready to go and do that work. Mm -hmm. But I feel like every single day you should strive to be 1% better than you were the day before. And if you do that, you will get to that point and you will be able to use what happened to you for good. But it's yeah. about what, what you want to do with that. Do you want to advocate? Do you want to work with a nonprofit? Do you want to do – I know people – I know somebody who's got a book coming out and I read it. I was privileged to read it uh, in advance and it is – it's it's the type of book where so much shit has happened to that individual and I know that the caliber of person and what she's able to do in this world now and what she does do on the back mm. end of things and it's just terrifying because yeah. if that's what it took to fuel somebody to be as successful as she is, then it's not that I want anyone to suffer, but sometimes adversity creates a monster and a monster yeah. that can be used for good. It's just about oh. how you frame it in mindset. Yeah. I remember when I was in grad school for therapy and they talked about, it was a very nebulous term at the time, the idea of process, right? So it was like this word that was used a lot in my training program, but felt very like undefined. So they would be like, so are you doing process work? And I'm like, what the fuck does that actually mean? Right? Like mm -hmm. what, what are we talking, what does, what does it look like to do process? I don't understand. I get it now. I get it differently. And it is, it's this idea that like, it's no one thing. It's these like myriad of things that unfold over time. And it is a process. It isn't this like, I went to sleep today and I wasn't okay. And I woke up today and now I'm fine. And I'm using all of the things for good. It's going to have this like ebb and flow and movement, right? And to some extent, indefinitely, like probably there will be parts of you that are somewhat changed to some mm -hmm. extent permanently, right? And yet, how do we continue to like adapt and make use and, and pivot to find ways to exist in whatever my today world is with what I'm coming in with it with? Well, a real, a real big start towards that is psychedelics. Uh, using psychedelics for, for healing is what is going to fix and save our community. <clears throat> Has that been part of your treatment experience? Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I fuck in the psychedelic space in a big way. <laughs> As so many of us say, I do, I do. I've yeah. got no issue speaking about it. I speak very freely about it. Yeah. Um, 
the one of the biggest and wrong things we do with individuals is diagnose very quickly and then over medicate heavily to yes. uh, first responders and veterans, and that has been been a major issue since World War II. I mean, every every war mm-hmm. since we've had pharmaceuticals have been we've been utilizing them. Um, as a way to numb out pain and to uh, really just have individuals get to a point where they can just function in daily life, but they're not really functioning, right? They're a shell of themselves because they're numbed out. And so I I was on a heavy heavy duty pharmaceuticals for the better part of a decade and through my 20s. And you being a doctor will understand that pharmaceuticals, when a body is changing and adapting and growing um, and is still developing, it's it's mm-hmm. the heavy-duty SSRIs and things like that and antipsychotics and sleep medication and just uppers yeah. and downers. And it's it's dangerous and it, it throws hormones on, out of whack. And then couple that with head injuries and blast exposure and TBIs. I mean, for God's sakes, you're masking so many problems by by the time you actually get off of the drugs, you go, oh, wait, these are what the real problems are. Mm-hmm. Now I really got to start working on these. And so yeah. for me, it got to a point where pharmaceuticals were so damaging and ineffective. And I was treatment resistant um, for, uh, I, I have PTS as well as major depressive disorder. And so I was, treat- I'm treatment resistant. Mm-hmm. Um could just be the longevity of being on all of those medications and just the the body going, well, this is as far as we go and we can't, you know, it doesn't matter how right. much more you we put into it, it's not going to work. We hit the plateau and that's the reality. And people understanding what treatment resistant really means. It's a real thing. It's a severe problem. Yeah. And it's because of overprescription <laughs> medications. Um, yeah. We want to we want to band-aid things in Western culture. We don't want to delve into the deep root issues because those are so often so traumatic and dark and deep that we're afraid uh, because we don't want someone to feel like they're being attacked or bullied or pushed into an uncomfortable situation because so many individuals most of their lives have never been in an uncomfortable situation, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's, that goes back to like child rearing and all of those lovely things, right? But giving diversity and adversity and, and making someone really have to have that inner voice that's, I can do this, I've got this, and, and putting them through things that are a struggle. For me, I was put through that, through martial arts and the way that I was raised, not in a negative way, but in a way that I was always taught, you push, for, you push forward and you go and you go and you go until it's done. And so for me, when I found that I was so treatment resistant – I wasn't willing to be like, well, this is my life now. Mm-hmm. I was like, this sucks. I don't like living like this. I'm getting worse. And this is going to go down a bad path real, real quick mm-hmm. if I don't find something else. And fortunately, I was introduced uh, through a gentleman I had on my podcast who's a sponsor of our show called Combat Flip Flops. He's a ranger. His name's uh, Griff. And um, okay. he was an advocate for, um, for ayahuasca uh, through a charity called Heroic Hearts Project. Uh, mm. Another ranger started that. And um, I was really struggling and he knew – he saw it in my eyes and we had a long conversation about ayahuasca. I then went to my my treatment doctor here and said, I am going to do this. I'm telling you to make you aware. I'm not asking permission. This is what I'm doing. And then I took ownership over my own mental health instead of having someone tell me what I should be doing. And he said, okay, here's the Mm -hmm. kicker. You can't be on SSRIs when you go do you can't when you go yeah. do ayahuasca and things like that yeah. because of serotonin reuptake syndrome. So I said, we're getting off of it then. Okay. We're getting off right now. And there had been a discussion about getting off of it. And I, you know, it's weaning off of a of a heavy duty deuce of a heavy mm-hmm. duty a heavy heavy duty 
dose of uh, SSRIs from the age of, you know, 18, 19 is going to be a tricky situation. I had a very short period of time. I didn't do it properly. I'm fully fine with admitting that. But I did it because I needed to go and do this. And something said, I need to go do this. So I did. And I went and sat in ceremony with ayahuasca um, in a shamanistic setting with other individuals and professionals and over a three-day period. And it changed my life. Hmm. And I never went back on the SSRI. And then I started microdosing um, for depression with um, psilocybin. Yeah. And doing that and using the stacking method and going, you know, the the four days a week, the Monday, Tuesday on, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday, and then coming to find out I had a TBI. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now we're understanding that PTS and TBIs have mimic-like yeah. behavior, totally. but we've been treating this and never treating this. So what happens if we start treating this? Well, I just got yeah. treatment for my TBI, uh, was it last month? Okay. So- I just did a full run of treatment down in Texas through the Resiliency Brain Center through Defenders of Freedom Organization. And the United States is now starting to see things like, well, we might have been putting the cart before the horse here because so many people with small arms fire have blast exposure, which caused TBIs. Mm -hmm. And so we're medicating for something while not understanding really what we're medicating for. And it's no fault of the system. It's we weren't exposed to these things. We weren't looking at these things until now, right? Yeah. Exactly. So um, using things like psilocybin um, for for depression is um, is a game changer. It's it's yeah. it's uh, it's unlike anything else. And there is um, in Canada, Apex Labs is doing their first clinical uh, trial, phase two A trial on psilocybin in veterans. I believe it's happening this month um, through synthetic psilocybin. So that okay. is going through. Um, as well as psilocybin is being fought for under Section 56 of the Charter of Rights through Theracil for people to get treatment-resistant access or uh, life-ending therapies with psilocybin. And so they're currently engaged in a lawsuit with the Canadian government to get uh, legislation to move forward under Section 56. So I I, I advocate for these things because they work. I advocate for uh, Cambo for for ibogaine for psilocybin for ayahuasca for MDMA therapy ketamine therapy. We would be ten times further, or if not more, ahead if we mm-hmm. never had the say no to drugs campaign in psychedelics. And we should be utilizing yeah. all of the tools that our exposure at uh, at our, our you know that we're exposed to. We have so many plant-based medicines that we can use now that we understand, mm-hmm. you know, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, Stanford, U of T are doing incredible research on all of these psychedelics. And so yeah. I personally believe that psychedelics are going to be the way to heal. Yeah. Um, again, I'm also on the backside of that, always say that psych- certain psychedelics are not for everyone. People with certain um, mental health issues, uh, schizophrenia, um, those types of things, bipolar, those things yeah. need to be looked at very differently. They need to be looked at with respect and with uh, advice of a doctor. And I, I don't say that psychedelics are for everyone and they're not going to fix your problem. What they're going to do is give you enough insight, do enough work inward that you're going to be able to see yourself in a different way and your reality and perceptions will change. And when that happens, your brain will change. And mm. we know that ayahuasca and psilocybin help rebuild your neurons. And so Mm -hmm. after TBI treatments, hitting it with psilocybin like that is going to promote that regrowth in a way that uh, you hadn't had before. Yeah. (coughs) I super value this piece because it's not one that we've talked about on this show at all prior to this. 
Um, and you're right, it is this piece that is for sure up and coming and really interesting to kind of track. I'm curious what the timeline will look like on it. It's been a piece discussed in my industry for so long um, that I feel like I've, I've been waiting to see when this comes about and actually becomes something that we get to utilize. I think I'm going to be waiting a while still, really. But um, I'm really excited about I think there's specific access points for veterans that are going to happen first. And that's often the case that like even PTSD treatment mechanisms and medication for that was always available to veterans first. Um, it's one Guinea of the pig. battles I think I face on the flip side of that is convincing people that PTSD isn't just for veterans. Um, but I think that I'm, I'm excited to see that there's some hope there. It'll oh, there's be a lot. To see how long. There's a ton. No, it's not going to be that long. You'd be shocked. Uh, the the okay. amount of work being done in, in the United States right now is astronomically just it's it's exponential growth at a pace that I, it's it's like do you remember when Canada decided that they were going to legalize cannabis? Yes. And it took only a couple of years. It went from it went into legislation, then it went it went right, medical. It's a bit zero to legislation. 60, yeah. And that's totally. what you're going to see with psilocybin's next. I sure hope so. So legislation – oh, no, it is. They're writing legislation right along the same way that they're writing the cannabis laws. They're working to integrate yeah. psilocybin as well. Um, now, the precedent's been set when you have somebody like Theracil going after the government under a charter of rights violation where we can now prove – now, we're having our charter of rights violated across the board on several sections. But under Section 56 in particular, they've been fighting this for a while. And now it's come to a head. And the beautiful thing you're seeing in the United States right now is with the veteran and first responder community, they're not not—they're no longer waiting for the government to fix them. Mm -hmm. They are stepping up from indiv individuals, leaders within the community to create nonprofits that start research. So yeah. Heroic Hearts Project has a UK version. They've just got the 5013C in Canada. They've got it in the United States. Um, and they're doing research within that. Vets Solutions uh, run by... So you've got Heroic Hearts Project that's run by a ranger special operator. Then you've got Vet Solutions who's run by a SEAL Team 6 uh, individual, mm -hmm. Marcus Capone, and his mm -hmm. wife. They've got legislation passed through Texas already. They did that yeah. in rapid fire. They're working with uh, universities. Like I said, Johns Hopkins is doing research on this. A friend of mine who's a, uh, studying at Harvard right now in neuro, he's working on um, psychedelics. This stuff is happening way faster than people realize. And it's yeah. going to – people are going to seek it out whether it's legal or not. We're no longer waiting for – the, the governments of the world and the FDA of the world after seeing, I think so many people are seeing how corrupt these systems really can be mm, and yeah. what are they letting through and why are they letting it through and at what point is it going to benefit them or pharmaceutical companies? So you're seeing people like these organizations pop up and go, we're no longer waiting. We're fixing the community now. We're not allowing yeah. another suicide ever again. We're going to get you into treatments. We're going to do them out of country. We're going to do them wherever we can. And yeah. we're going to do them because no one else is coming to save us but us. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you're seeing these organizations pop up. It's happening soon and it's yeah. happening fast. And trust me, there are plenty of ways that individuals are going to get access. There's tons of treatment facilities in Vancouver for ketamine. There's mm -hmm. tons of treatment facilities and individuals who are willing to prescribe psilocybin, even though it's illegal. The reason you're seeing psilocybin companies have websites enabled to ship, the federal government knows that these people are doing these things, but they also know it's borderline, right? Just like how yeah. cannabis was. So I got off of pharmaceutical medication because I was utilizing cannabis before it was mm -hmm. legal. Mm -hmm. And then I got covered early on by Veterans Affairs before it was legal. And then that's part of my prescription. Right. So 
cannabis helped me get off the really nasty stuff. And then plant-based is what I've continued to use moving forward, and it works. And that's what terrifies large pharmaceutical companies. Totally. Right? And that's why legislation moves slow. It's because they can't benefit from it. And so if you can't benefit from it, then there's no need for it. It doesn't matter. You would rather a sick patient on a medication their whole life than a healthy patient that no longer needs you. So that's why you're seeing – things pop up and they're going to be faster than you realize. Just like technology is, you know, the singularity is right there. Like technology is moving at a pace. You're going to see it with other healing modalities as well. I'm excited for that. I I am intrigued and excited. I want to, I want to step back from this conversation for a second and kind of reframe. This is going to be my last big question. If you were to speak to new recruits, or those kind of early in the process about shaping expectations, kind of that, like, I thought I was going to be in this for my career. I thought this was going to be what I did till I retired. What would you want them to know? What would you speak to them out of all of your experiences that have come from all of this? It's hard for me. I get a mixed feelings if I'm completely honest about, you know, recommending, uh, I, it's a really tricky one for me. I try not to tap dance around it too much, but to be very blunt about it. Uh, For example, last week I had an individual walk into my my headquarters uh, out of the blue and say, I heard your story on Jocko and I joined the military and I start basic training on May 8th. Whoa. So that was yesterday. So he's, he's in, he went into training yesterday. Um. I have a hard time with it because I believe that everyone should feel like they, if they want to go serve their country, serve their country. Uh, I think there is, we need military. We need it. We do. I don't care what anybody has to say. The world needs, you don't have a strong military. It's often not great. Your country ends up getting bulldozed pretty damn hard. And so you need that. You need people that are going to be willing to do that. Um, Know why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Don't do it for the country. Don't do it for the government that sits in power. Do it because you want to help people. And if you feel like that is going to be a way for you to go and impact change in the world, then go for it. Hmm. Don't have an expectation, but don't also wait for them to come save you when something goes wrong. When you get out, if you're struggling, advocate for yourself. You have to be your own advocate. That is the reality. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind closed doors when it comes to assaults in the military, when it comes to sweeping things under the rug. It happens all the time. It's still happening. So be aware. Have your eyes open. Know what you're getting yourself into. And don't put yourself in a position that you aren't ready to handle. Um, I, I, I say I say go for it, but I'm done fighting rich men wars. So I – and I think our kids need to be too. Um we should pay attention to what's happening in our country and how do we make positive change within our country, right? Mm. How do we do it so that we can help our citizens um, get away from tyranny and overreach and, and um, damage? So yeah. I would say becoming a police officer would be more effective. Affect change from within. Mm. You know, affect mm. the police officers that think that they, that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. Go and help affect change in those departments. Do it where it yeah. matters. Do it at home. Um, yeah. So that's, that's always my piece of advice. Be aware. And, and if you think that this is, could be possibly temporary for you, have a backup plan. 
be ready when it comes to transition, have conversations, reach out for support when it comes to transition. Don't sign anything unless you've spoken to a few people because they mm-hmm. love to do that, right? Yeah. Don't let them hit you when you're down. Always reach out and ask for help from other individuals Be and just have your eyes open. Don't go in with this. I'm going to to be the next, you know, um, Cap- to Captain America. That doesn't happen, man. <laughs> That's not the reality of the world. What this isn't Halo. Though. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't Halo. Yeah. It's 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 not it's not a video game. War is real. Mm-hmm. It yeah. has impact. And you damn well better be ready to pull the trigger when you go join and do that job. So if that's yeah. not something for you, don't bother joining. Go do something else that'll impact and make a positive impact in your community that you can see, that you can touch and that you can expand on. Totally. Hmm. I love this conversation as much as I expected I would. Thanks a lot, Kelsey. I really appreciate your time. It's been really fun. No, I'm so glad. Thank you for reaching out. I'm uh, anytime. Let me know. We're never far from each other. Deal. All right.